Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 563 for the 8th of October, 2017. This week, it has been 40 years since Apple introduced the Apple II, a computer that remained in production until 1993. In June, frustration with a OneNote synchronization problem drove me to Evernote. Now, Evernote's flaws have driven me right back to OneNote. I'll explain that. In short circuits, Google announced a bunch of new hardware this week and artificial intelligence is everywhere. Equifax has increased the number of accounts affected by its data breach, adding two and a half million and bringing the total to nearly 146 million. The all-time leader in big breaches continues to be Yahoo though, and that company has increased the number of affected accounts from one billion, billion, to three billion. In spare parts, only on the website, this is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month and Malwarebytes has some suggestions for you. Perhaps you've wondered what online criminals want. These days, it seems primarily to be your username and password. And D-Link has updated a home security camera with some new features and support for Android devices. The device that truly introduced personal computing to the world is 40 years old. Some of them still run. The Apple II came to market in 1977. At the time, it was a breakthrough with a MOS Technology 6502 8-bit CPU and as much as 64 kilobytes of RAM. Back then, the computer cost about $1,300. That'd be about 5000 in today's dollars. And that was for the model with 4 kilobytes of RAM. If you had enough money, you could max it out with 64 kilobytes. Users could opt for a high-resolution monitor, all of 280 pixels by 192, and that monitor was capable of displaying eight colors. You did have to have a lot of extra money, though. Data was stored on an audio cassette, or if you had enough money, on five and a quarter inch floppy disks, capacity 140 kilobytes. The Apple II had a long run. It wasn't phased out until 1993, nearly a decade after Apple introduced the Mac. Hobbyists liked the Apple II, but in 1979, something happened that caused office workers to be interested. That something was VisiCalc, and business managers discovered that the primitive computer offered them some things that mainframe computers didn't. It sat on their desk. It was available anytime, didn't require an IT manager's approval to run a program, and it was relatively easy to use. The growth was phenomenal. Wikipedia cites figures from Infinite Loop. During the first five years of operations, revenues doubled about every four months, the article says. Between September 1977 and September 1980, yearly sales grew from $775,000 to $118 million, an average annual growth rate of 533%. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a copy of an old advertisement for the Apple II. 
and also an article by Steve Wozniak explaining the Apple II technology. Other companies got into the personal computer business. Atari, that was my choice at the time, Sinclair Timex, Radio Shack, Amiga, Commodore. Many of these early computers have fan clubs that are still around. Apple's is undoubtedly the largest. This summer, I encountered a website that described the vintage Computer Fest West. That eventually led me to Kansas Fest, the Apple II Forever 2017 event. Ken Gagney, who publishes a quarterly Apple magazine called Juice JS, gave me permission to use some of his photographs. And if you want to go next year, Kansas Fest 2018 is scheduled for July 17th through the 22nd. Vintage Computer Fest includes many brands of older computers. If the thought of attending an event that features these antique computers appeals to you, you can head for Seattle in February for the next event, the Vintage Computer Festival Pacific Northwest. There are Vintage Computer Festival events in the East and Southeast, too. And speaking of VisiCalc, had it not been for VisiCalc, some other application probably would have been invented that would have had the same effect. The spreadsheet program had uses at home and at the office, so that's possibly why it became the first killer app, but it had a fairly short life. Five years later, Lotus released a program called 123. The Lotus spreadsheet took advantage of the expanded memory and larger screen of the IBM PC and all of the clones. VisiCalc sales dried up almost instantly, and the company was soon insolvent. Lotus Development purchased VisiCalc in 1985 and killed all of the applications that had been developed by VisiCalc's inventor, Dan Bricklin. If you find this kind of stuff interesting, this historical stuff, you'll find a lot of very useful background information on a couple of websites by Dan Bricklin. There are links to them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you like stories about changes in technology, New York Times veteran photographer Jim Wilson has been on the job for 40 years He's seen a lot of change in that time. There's an article that recounts the, some of the changes he's seen. It's on the New York Times website this week. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Back in June, on the 4th specifically, I shared a segment called Reconsidering Evernote. Now, just three months later, I have to reconsider reconsidering Evernote. In June, I complained about Microsoft's OneNote because the synchronization feature caused the computer to be slow, and I suggested the solution might be Evernote. Now I'm not so sure. The problem I was trying to solve involved performance. OneNote is installed on all of my computers that have Microsoft Office installed, and the ability to synchronize information across systems is helpful, but I found that it caused an enormous performance issue, enormous as in the computer is non-functional during the sync process. Evernote doesn't have the same performance issues, and although it also doesn't have a lot of the features that OneNote has, features I happen to like, by the way, 
I switched to Evernote. Because of the number of computers I need to synchronize, a paid subscription was essential, so I bought a paid subscription. Until mid-September, Evernote was okay. Okay as in meeting the bare minimum requirements. Formatting is weak. I could no longer track projects I'm working on by using various status markers, but I made do. Then in mid-September, I opened Evernote to check on the upcoming week's TechBiter topics, and what I saw was essentially unreadable. Each program has a number and a date. The columns for this information should be relatively narrow. A third column shows the topics. Evernote had made the columns with the program number and the date extremely wide and had narrowed the one column that should be wide to something that was very hard to read. So I have now cautiously returned to OneNote. Automatic synchronization is currently enabled only on my main computer and on the Surface tablet. So far, it's working okay, as in, wow, I'm really glad to have OneNote's capabilities back, and I still can't understand Evernote's popularity. This is at least the third or fourth time that I have tried to make Evernote my friend, and it just doesn't seem to work out. Evernote seems to be the preferred choice for copying and pasting big chunks of text, website pages, and things like that into an application that makes them relatively easy to find, but doesn't care much about how readable they are once they are found. OneNote is equally good about being able to find information in multiple notebooks. In fact, its search function seems to outperform Evernote, at least the way I use it. Since switching back to OneNote, I haven't seen the extreme performance degradation that initially drove me to Evernote. It's a problem that has been documented several times over the years by a lot of people, so there's probably some potential that it'll return. For now, though, OneNote is a welcome relief from the needlessly jumbled approach of Evernote. In short circuits, Google increased its threat to Apple, Amazon, and Samsung this week with lots of new hardware, and most of the hardware is packed with artificial intelligence. Google CEO Sundar Pichai said that artificial intelligence is rapidly improving in the way that makes it more useful for users. Highlights include image recognition, improvements in the virtual assistant, and a new feature for maps that helps find parking spaces. Google launched the Pixel phone a year ago. Now they're ready with version 2. $650 for the Pixel 2 with a 5-inch screen, $850 for the Pixel 2 XL with a 6-inch screen. There's no longer a headphone jack, but there is an adapter that allows the use of headphones. The phones will be in stores starting October 19th. If you want, you can order one right now. The Pixel 2's 12.2-megapixel rear camera attempts to recognize and blur backgrounds when it's set to portrait mode. There's also optical image stabilization built in to reduce shake, and the camera always takes several shots and then merges them, built-in high dynamic range, in other words. There's also a camera that doesn't include a phone. The $250 Google Clip was announced. It isn't yet available. Coming soon is the technical term. When it arrives, users will be able to attach or clip it to a stationary object. The camera then tries to figure out what to photograph for the user. Clip could mean that you clip the camera to something, 
or that it creates video clips, or both. In any event, Google goes out of its way to point out that no internet connection is needed. However, if you really want to use the video clips, you need an internet connection. Now, all of this comes with a price. Google will have access to the images. It can figure out what kinds of products you use, and you'll find more targeted advertising. That's certainly not something to be overjoyed about, but it's maybe not entirely bad either. When Google knows what you like, you'll see more ads that pertain to those things. In other words, ads that are of more interest to you. Good or bad? Could be either. You pick. Google Home, that's the virtual assistant, or depending on your point of view, spy, that Google introduced a year ago, now has two siblings. Google Home Mini is a small $50 assistant, and there's the $400 Google Home Max, a larger virtual assistant that's designed primarily for music fans. The Mini will be available later this month. The Max won't be in stores until December. And if you want to completely Googleize yourself, there's the $1,000 Pixel Book, a small computer with a 12-inch touchscreen. The computer can be ordered now. It'll be available at the end of the month. Equifax says that another 2.5 million accounts need to be included in the list of those affected by its giant data breach. That pushes the total up to nearly 146 million accounts. The company's interim CEO, Paulino de Rego Barros, says that the news comes from forensic investigation by cybersecurity firm Mandiant. The former CEO is gone, not fired, but allowed to retire. He has forfeited his 2017 bonus. That bonus would have been more than $3 million. Isn't that nice of him? He could still receive tens of millions of dollars in compensation for leading the company to one of the worst data breaches in history. When the company announced the retirement, Equifax said that it reserved the right to modify the status under which Richard Smith left the company. In other words, if the review determines that the breach was the result of Smith's actions, or non-actions, Equifax could modify retired to fired. That change, if it happens, could limit his future income, but Smith will still collect about $72 million this year and expects to receive another $18 million as his stock compensation vests. Equifax's response to the event has been abysmal with a significant delay in reporting the breach, executives selling stock before the announcement happened, the initial data breach checker that was essentially useless, and using Twitter to provide a link to a fake phishing site instead of its own support site. Fortunately, that phishing site was a fake, and it had been set up by a good guy who intended to illustrate how a bad situation can be made even worse. A news release this week quotes the interim CEO discussing the additional names added to the list. He says, I was advised Sunday that the analysis of the number of consumers potentially impacted by the cybersecurity incident has been completed, and I directed the results be promptly released. Barrow says the company's priorities are transparency and improving support for consumers. Here's another bit of good news. 
The review by Mandiant has determined that there is no evidence attackers were able to access databases outside the United States. Additionally, Equifax previously said as many as 100,000 Canadian accounts might have been affected. That number has been reduced to 8,000. As for Smith, he'll receive salary for his work in 2017 and has more than $18 million in retirement benefits coming. Before the breach was announced, he had dumped about $19 million in stock. Now, to the average person, me, for example, that looks a lot like insider trading, which is illegal. Smith still owns nearly $24 million in Equifax stock, so apparently he's not going to be indigent anytime soon. Smith is quoted as saying he has been completely dedicated to making this right. Well, when it comes to data breaches, nobody takes a backseat to Yahoo. The company's previously announced biggest ever data breach just got larger. This week, the company increased the size of the breach that started out with a paltry 500 million users to 3 billion. That's three with nine zeros behind it. Three billion. By contrast, just 323 million people live in the United States, 36 million in Canada, 144 million in Russia. So clearly, it's a breach that has worldwide implications. Verizon bought Yahoo but trimmed the price by $350 million. Although two Russians have been charged with the initial break-in, it's not clear who's responsible for the others. Yahoo announced the 500 million account breach in August, boosted that to 1 billion later in the year, now says that it was really every account they have. Yahoo didn't even discover one breach until three years after it happened, and that investigation took four years. The breach that happened in 2014 wasn't disclosed for two years. That's the one that initially was said to have affected 500 million accounts, pretty big at the time. But in terms of impact, the Equifax breach is probably a lot more serious. Even though it affected far fewer accounts, the type of data exposed was far more useful to crooks. Yahoo announced the latest news on the 3rd of October, but it turned out not to be news to most security experts. They had just assumed from the start that the breach had probably affected all users. And perhaps spare parts will affect all users. You'll find it only on the website. This week, this is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and Malwarebytes has some suggestions for you. Perhaps you've wondered what online criminals want. These days, it seems to be primarily your username and password. And D-Link has updated a home security camera with some new features and support for Android devices. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week. Thank you.